Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Today's guest on The Business of You is the co-founder of a company called Get Set Up. His name is Lawrence Kosick. And Get Set Up is a learning platform and community for older adults. By older adults, we mean in the 62 to 75 age range. That's their medium age. And of course, older people are welcome to join as well. Something I learned on this show is that 30% plus of our population is leaning towards the 65 plus age and higher. So when Lawrence launched this platform, he thought it would be obviously successful, but he didn't expect it to grow as fast as it has. In just a few years, they have over 4,500 classes on the platform, and they have several million users around the world. Some of Lawrence's funders are Jerry Yang and Reid Hoffman from Yahoo and LinkedIn, and also Zynga, if you remember that company, is an investor in Get Set Up. There are also some other investors, but I'll let you listen to the show to hear who they are. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You as you learn about this really impressive online learning platform and how to grow a community, an online system for a group of people in a niche industry. It's a great listen if that's something you're interested in doing. Enjoy. Lawrence, great to see you today. How are you so far? I'm doing great, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to have you on the show. So you've created a real interesting company called Get Set Up, getsetup.com, and you have a very fascinating background. So can you share what you've been doing the last, say, 25, 30 years of your career and and how you got to where you are today? I'd I'd be happy to. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm 55 years old. And the reason that's relevant is because Get Set Up's business is a social learning platform for older adults. Um, and why, while I might be at the younger end of that, that demographic, the notion was, uh, with myself and two other co-founders, we found ourselves at this point in, in our lives where we were, we were helping our older friends, family, and loved ones. Uh, learn the things they needed to learn to access, you know, uh, popular apps, services, uh, programs, and we weren't very good tech support. Um, and so we realized uh, that there was a there was a place for every other demographic to 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 go to learn new things, socialize, and connect with others. But there really wasn't a safe, secure place for older adults, of which I'm now becoming one. Um, and so we wanted to create that place. Um, and it was it was near and dear to my heart because 
as a kid, um, my father was a founder of a um, nonprofit senior living community. And after school, nights and weekends, I remember going to visit um, the facility and sitting and talking with the older adults. And there was two things way back then that occurred to me. Uh, one, amazing, amazing stories. These folks had sort of amazing energy and amazing stories. But two was they felt a little lonely, a little isolated and almost forgotten. That sat with me uh, over the years. And as I did various startups, um, usually on the business side, raising money, uh, running sort of the alliance team, the business development team uh, for different companies, um, it, it really sort of sat in my mind, how could I apply um, my business um, and fundraising experience to now partner and maybe tackle something that was more fulfilling at this point in my life where I could wake up every day and feel like I was excited about solving a specific problem. Um, and, and, and that's really how we, we, we got the notion of Get Set Up that launched, I think, a little over three years ago. Mm. I'd love for you to share a bit of your journey, your entrepreneurial journey, because you've been in the Bay Area for over two decades, um, have a lot of really fascinating experience. Can you share you know, what some of your earlier days at Yahoo were like? And even before that, how you even got to Yahoo and kind of at the right place at the right time? Sure. <laughs> um, so, so I'm a born and raised Canadian, um, but I've lived more than half my, my life um, in, in the United States. I moved down um, to the U.S. when I was about 26 years of age. Um, and it was to discover um, and take part in this very new thing called the Internet. Like literally, I had read a, a very impactful book called The Digital Economy um, by a gentleman by the name of Don Tapscott. And it was talking about how the Internet was going to completely change the way we accessed information. And I wanted to be a part of that. So I moved to the U.S. I found a job. Uh, with a company called Excite, which then became Excite at Home, uh, which was in that competitive space with Yahoo. Um, and and funny story, uh, when I told my mother that I was moving to the U.S. to work for a company called Excite, she actually thought it was you know some sort of a a, a condom or porn related company. <laughs> I can uh, see because that. Of, because <laughs> of the name, I was like, no, mom, it's actually technology. She said, well, that sounds suspicious to me, son. <laughs> um, but I, 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 I worked there for mm, probably about a year. And then I made a, a jump because Yahoo was in its infancy as well. Uh, all of these companies were, were, were very new and, um, SoftBank interactive, uh, was the outsourced sales arm for Yahoo. And Yahoo was at the point where they were going to bring all of the sales and BD in-house. And so I got to be sort of the first person there to go and help do that, to migrate it all from SoftBank Interactive in-house at, at Yahoo. Um, I spent um, seven, almost eight years there um, as a very early, I think the first salesperson on the West Coast. And then the last couple of years there, I ran their global alliance team uh, where we got to think a lot about um, uh, the non-traditional 
deals, things outside of normal advertising, you know, how to create premium services, how to identify new markets, how to expand globally, how to better monetize the platform. And that was a really wonderful experience for me. Um, and also a wonderful network that I was able to create because there's been so many people that have, have, have worked at Yahoo now over the course. I think, I think half of the Silicon Valley has, has worked for Yahoo at some point or one of their affiliates and now gone on to become, you know, venture partners or, you know, um, or early founders at now very, very large companies. Um, and it's wonderful to have access to that network as, as I've needed to in order to build you know, uh, different startups and raise money and get introductions um, that were key parts to that business. Um, so I have done, I, I, I love startups. Um, they're not for everybody because you have to be truly a little bit of a broken toy um, to go and do a startup because you are fundamentally disrupting uh, a market or building something that's never been built before. That is not for the faint of heart. Uh, but for the right person, that is a wonderful thing to do. But there is nothing easy about doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's like figuring out a puzzle without all the pieces in, on the board, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you've made the decision pretty early in the life of Get Set Up to take on funding. Uh, why was that, to take on external funding? So um, we started the business um, just prior to um, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we, we actually thought we were going to build sort of more of a predictable incremental, uh, trajectory style business. When the pandemic hit, we realized there was a moment in time where our audience was going to be impacted. So the older adult audience that we serve at get set up was going to be impacted First and foremost, meaning they were going to be the ones that were um, most isolated, most affected by that isolation, and would have sort of the largest technical gap to solve for if they had to now stay inside their home and have to access almost every service virtually. So suddenly you have um, a huge portion of the population, and eventually almost all the population, but from an older adult perspective, um, this demographic now had to think about, well, do I know how to use a smart device? Do I know how to use telehealth services? Do I know how to order my groceries using an app? Do I know how to have my medication delivered and all of the app and technology around making that happen? Um, and, and so we realized that there was a huge technical deficit and need uh, to ramp this up and scale it faster. And so that is when we made the decision um, that we would have to go out and raise capital. Um, and it made sense for this category because um, the, the 50 and 60 plus portion of the US demographic, it's the fastest growing portion of our population. As a matter of fact, not just in the US, in most countries globally, and Japan being the most extreme example, uh, Italy as well. But we as a country are aging um, on average, very, very, very quickly, meaning we're not having as many babies as we used to. So we have a disproportionate amount of older adults that need to learn things to live happy, healthy, more connected lives. So there was a very big addressable market. It now immediately needed 
specific services because of this pandemic. And we thought there was a real moment in time to go build a long-term scalable business around um, solving this problem and addressing this opportunity. Mm-hmm. What were the, your really early days? Like, were you and your two co-founders sitting around brainstorming or did one of you have this light bulb moment and thought, oh, we need to create a platform for you know the 52-year-old, 55-year-old plus demographic or what was the impetus aside from your father's background? You know, that's a great question. I, so I had a very technical co-founder, I still do. Um, and, and he likes to test. So he's, we started talking about this. Um, and we, we really, we really, um, discussed it and brainstormed it for probably almost 12 months on a very regular basis, because we were both thinking this through with our parents and we would talk about the challenges that we had around trying to help them do, you know, basic and or important and interesting things um, using their devices at home. And we realized that we were not very good tech support. So I, 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 I failed and my father will tell you this, that I am not the best tech support. And so as we started to sort of think this through, um, my co-founder said, well, well, why don't I quickly build a website and let's put up some sample classes that we think will be popular, like how to use Zoom, for example, or how to use your iPad or how to use your iPhone. Like, like think about the real first mile problems that you'd want to address if you wanted to help, you know, our parents or this, this demographic at, at large. And we would produce those classes. We would even teach those classes. So we were doing everything from building the site um, to hosting the classes, to creating the curriculum, um, and then interviewing the learners to see what they wanted more of, less of, et cetera. Um, And that was really important because we learned a, a lot of things that I think surprised us that informed the product roadmap. But we were literally doing everything. And when we realized that there was some real impact being created here. And it was really a service um, that was needed. Um, We actually called the National Retired Teachers Association and we said, hey, uh, do you have a bunch of retired teachers who might like to continue working? And because teachers retire, you know, in this country, anywhere from like 45 all the way to 65, 70, right? And so they, they, they sent us, they introduced us to 100 plus different teachers um, so, so we knew that they had 80% of the characteristics that we needed, and, and we just needed to solve for how to teach somebody who was very good at teaching and de- delivering a curriculum in a, in a physical classroom, how to teach them how to teach online. Um, and so we, we, we had, my co-founder had a friend who was retiring from Apple after 33 years of, of designing and building their genius bar. Now, Rachel, we always think that the genius bar is the smart kids at the back of the store that help us with our problems. But the the, the reality is, is that Apple had, I don't know, at that time, 16,000 people that were distributed around the country that would help any of us virtually sort of be onboarded onto any new Apple product or service if we just scheduled an appointment. So she knew how to teach others to teach online. And so what we did is we had her create an academy for these hundred retired teachers. And we said, let, let, let's figure out how we teach you to teach using tools like Zoom. And we put them through this academy and then we started launching 
the more important classes beyond just sort of devices and Zoom, which was like how to use telehealth, how to order groceries, how to exercise at home, how to cook healthy recipes, um, you know, how to manage a chronic illness. And the curriculum just grew from there because we started asking our learners what else you wanted or needed to learn. And that be, just became a wonderful source of, of new topics and new programming. And then we just continued to hire um, educators or credentialed folk on one side of, of, of the table uh, to teach uh, wonderful learners who either wanted or needed to learn these different products or services. Yeah, that's so brilliant. Um, your approach to how you brought the educators on and then your connection to the genius bar person was probably synchronicity. But when you were describing this earlier, when we were talking before we started recording, I was thinking this actually sounds like a virtual genius bar of life skills for, you know, this real specific demographic. So, um, so fascinating. So it started out as that. Yeah. Um, and then we, we were surprised, um, when you run or create a highly interactive environment. So in, in our case, it's, it is a virtual, it's zoom like, I mean, we've custom built our own tool to make it sort of friendlier and more sort of specific to, to, to older adults. But we definitely over-indexed on interactivity and engagement, right? Because we knew that there was tools like YouTube and Coursera where people could just go and watch things if they wanted to learn. We thought, how do we create sort of an environment where people could be, they could feel safe and comfortable enough so that when they wanted to turn on their camera and they wanted to ask a question, they could do it. And they could do it with other folks who were, who were just like them, meaning a similar page, age, empathy, patience, cadence. And that removed a lot of the fear because as we mentioned, as we were, when we were discussing earlier, Rachel, when, when an older adult is now interacting and conversing and learning from another older adult, it sort of disarms any sort of sense of fear and hesitation because they feel like, well, that person can do it. Maybe, maybe I can do it too. That was a really key learning for us. We didn't expect it to be truly as magical as it has become, but that interactivity means that people are taking classes together. In many cases, they're making friends. They come back and take classes together and you start to realize that you're not only teaching them things, but there's many instances where you might be helping them overcome loneliness because there's a lot of, a lot of this population, all of us um, that are living slightly more isolated lives, right? We, we live in rural communities, um, some of us are less mobile than others. Uh, we might not be able to get out as much as we like. So, um, this has become a platform where people can learn new things, but they can socialize and connect with others. And that becomes sort of their network, their yeah, friends. That's beautiful. Um, around the community component, is that happening in the classroom or are there other aspects of the tool where that happens as well? Yeah. So that's a great question, Rachel. It's the answer is both. So, mm -hmm. um, they meet in the class, they ask questions, um, they talk amongst each other, they share their experiences. Um, and then we also have a club area where after class, they can go and meet and continue a conversation around uh, a subject um, or a topic. Um, and so we see support groups forming in there. 
we see different types of groups, you know, gardening, photography, travel clubs around specific with, with their friends or with folks who are interested in like-minded things. Um, but it's important um, to mention that we offer different types of curriculum. Not everything is an ac a structured academic class. Much, much of it is. But if you think about um, helping somebody uh, understand their iPad or a tool like, say, LinkedIn, because maybe they still want to do some volunteer work and that's their virtual resume and they're trying to update it and they don't know how. Those are smaller, more interactive classes versus a follow-along exercise class is not as interactive because it doesn't need to be. But then there's actual, almost like community-led groups where people meet and they're eating their lunch together um, virtually, right? They're all, right. they all oh, grab their nice. sandwich and they meet yeah. and they chat while they're, while they're eating their lunch. Um, but they create support groups. They create just fun discussion groups. So there can be very social and entertaining as mm -hmm. well as very sort of academic structural topics right. on the platform. It's all of the above. We have 4,500 different sort of class types. Wow. Um, and so there's, there's, there's everything. There's everything. That's amazing. How many users do you have now? Uh, so I think we, I think we're in the the several millions. I think we're a little over two million in the U.S. and then it's approximately double that if you include all of the global, um, the internet. And, and here's what's interesting. This also Rachel surprised us. If you think about it, we're all first, second, third generation immigrants here, right? We've all come from somewhere else if we're you know living in the U.S. So when you when you ask an older adult to invite, to share, um, there's a pretty good chance that a portion of their network is going to be from some other country, some other place, right? Um, and so as we've, as we've asked people to bring friends, family, loved ones onto the platform, and as, as, as we've offered content in more languages, it has naturally attracted more folks from different places. And we like that because it creates a different dynamic on the platform because our, we love, we all, you know, love to travel. Many of us love to travel and whether we can physically go and travel, which many of us still can, or we just want to talk about travel or share our photos or share our experiences. The subject of travel is, is a very, very pop, uh, popular topic. Um, for uh, for our platform, and, and so um, sharing that has been sharing that has been great, and and we see that it's promoted sort of a, a much more international, multicultural flavor across the mm -hmm. platform. Mm -hmm. Which country would you say has the largest adoption rate? It sounds like the U.S. first with a couple million. Yeah, Users. and then India, India's, India is really big and all of the dialects sort of there and and more broadly Asia. So so uh, lots of Spanish programming, Mandarin programming and Hindi um, are all important. Um, and the use case, interestingly enough, Rachel, the use cases are different. And I don't think we expected this going in. But if you think about it, um, the 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 primary use cases oftentimes in the US are helping an older adult kind of bridge the digital divide, figure out a piece of tech that then enables them to do a whole, a whole bunch of other things. Um, if you actually go and you look at, um, say, a country like India or Singapore, 
where they the older adults have all had smartphones for years. In some cases, instead of a home phone, they, they've always had a smartphone or they've had it for many years. And many of them are adept at using um, services like WhatsApp. Like, for example, all older adults in India know how to use WhatsApp. So it means that their ability to get a link, to share a link to, that gets them into a, say, video class or to use technology to socialize with somebody else, that problem is generally already solved for. So they, buy, they bypass, in those countries, they bypass the introduction to tech classes that are often very popular here. And they go right to the socialization, uh, exercise, cooking, travel, things that they may have never had an opportunity to do or found a place where they could learn safely with others. They go right to that point. And so it's been really interesting to sort of see the differences in usage between countries that have a sort of ubiquitous technology layer yes. versus those that do not. Yeah, yeah, no, that is super fascinating. How did you market in the early days? How did you start to attract your user base, um, especially given that they may not have been that tech savvy? Yeah, I mean, um, a lot of grassroots, right? I mean, you, you need to look at where people are and and you think, okay, well, what kind of media do they consume now? You know, many of them are are, are using their some some form of smart device, but in a very basic way. So there might be a way to reach them via email or some on Facebook. There's a fair amount of older adults on Facebook um, and, and on on some of the other platforms. But but then you really need to start thinking about you know how do I use um, print TV, radio, basic basic media to try and find folks, you know, where they are now, right? Um, and or um, many of, of our, our folks have loved ones, let's, let's just loosely call them sort of caregivers. But if you're 45 and you have a, you know, 65 or 70 year old parent, and during COVID, you were all maybe stuck in one home, right? And so in many cases, it was the, the 45 year old daughter who was trying to look after her kids at home and her parents at home or remotely and needed some help and would discover services like ours and then introduce the parents. And then we would take it from there. So um, there was a variety of ways um, that, that we were thinking about how to find these people and onboard mm -hmm. them onto the platform. Mm -hmm. Did you ever do any sort of um, partnership with some senior citizen homes or you know, facility, facilities like your dad used to run? Yes, absolutely. Th those are all those those are all important partners for us. Um, the early partners for us um, were um, broadly. Every state has a Department of Health and Human Services, and beneath that department, there's a Department of Aging in every state, right? And the Department of Aging thinks about the things that that we think about, which is um, meal delivery, helping people get to their doctors, education around basic products and services that folks might need to know about, whether that be government programs or, or other. And as you can imagine, Rachel, when the pandemic hit, a lot of those services were in-person, sort of physically executed services that could no longer be done. And so we, um, we were able to sort of quickly 
uh, contact a variety of, of different government agencies and say, hey, listen, if we could do that for you virtually, um, would that be helpful? And in many cases it was. And so we now have, you know, important contracts with 30 different uh, state governments and um, uh, local city organizations. Um, there's, there's what we call AAAs, which are area agencies for the aging, which are, and there's one of them in every county in every state. And they operate at the local level. They do wonderful work. And they think a lot about how to make services like ours uh, available to the local community because they can't get to, they can't possibly service all of their local older adults in an in-person way. So how do you have virtual and what we mm -hmm. do sort of complement that? Right. And those right. are all very important partners for us early on. Yeah, I bet. So you've really experienced some explosive growth just in three years to go to over you know, several million users. How, how have you handled that growth? Um, <laughs> the very best we can, because um, part of it is we were uh, right place, right time. And I think even now uh, there's, there's not really anybody else that does exactly what we do at this kind of scale, probably because um it's reasonably difficult to do because if you think about it, right, um, reskilling and upskilling, you know, an older adult and then um, marketing um, and bringing other older adults onto a platform, it means you have older adults on potentially both sides of a, almost almost a managed marketplace. Um, and and that, is a, that, that is an interesting business to have to grow and scale because inherent um, – those challenges are, you, you know, you're trying to market to a demographic that isn't digitally native. So how do you find them? How do you get them onto the platform? How do you get them using technology? How do you get them uh, um, working and teaching on a platform uh, with others where they also have a technical deficit? Um, it means that the need and the challenge is, is significant. And we always believe that if we could solve it, the barrier to entry for anybody else would be significant. That's absolutely true. Although this is such a big problem and a big opportunity. Like this is the fastest, like in the next 25, 30 years, this could be anywhere between 25 and 30% of our total population. So if you're an entrepreneur and you are looking for a big category to think about, thinking about something in the longevity space or aging space immediately checks the box for addressable market, right? Um, and, and, it, it, it surprised us that it's only been recently where venture and entrepreneurs have started to really understand and think about this as a category, but we would encourage, you know, anybody who's, who's working on an idea to think about how it could be uniquely applied to serving, servicing this portion of the population, because it is definitely new territory, right? These are the folks that, that have disposable income, um, have a need, um, have to learn important products and services. And most, I think, Fortune 500 or Fortune, even Fortune 5000 companies don't think about building products and services tailored to the fastest growing portion of our demographic. I'll give you an example. If you go to open a bank account at, say, Wells Fargo, or you go, 
buy a set of Bluetooth headphones at, say, Best Buy, there's a pretty high likelihood that you, whether you're a millennial or an older adult, are going to be told to scan some kind of a QR code, go to a URL, and figure out how to self-onboard that product. Register. Go ahead. Just go to this URL and register and sign up, and you're good to go. And so more companies are just assuming that we can self-service our way onto their products and services. But that's not necessarily true if you've not helped somebody who's, who's not digitally native learn how to use a basic smart device, learn how to download an app and feel comfortable using that, right? So there's a big business and a big opportunity in helping companies, products and services bridge that gap. Because if you do, you're helping them access perhaps the largest portion of the, of, of the demographic that they're currently not doing a great job of servicing, which is upside right. for them. Right, right. Interesting. Um, just switching gears a little bit to to you personally, it strikes me that you know in this role you're very much in the in the leadership seat, right? Like you're you're guiding the ship, and in your other roles, particular particularly at Yahoo, you were but you know of one division. So how have you, um, Lawrence, like essentially been retooling yourself to to take this leadership role on as a co-founder? I, I come to work every day uh, prepared to make some mistakes, take some risks, make some mistakes, and figure out how to learn from those and fast fix those. Because I've, I've come to grip with the fact that we've launched a business in a space where nobody's launched anything sort of similar before. And so there's no real playbook. And I think the worst thing I can do is show up and go, hey, I, I know everything there is to know about solving this problem because I, I, I certainly don't. Um, and we even jokingly, you know, amongst my, my other two co-founders <laughs> say, we mess everything up initially, first go. We, we try and test and fail, and then we fast fix. And it causes me to have to be very honest with myself and say, wow, that is another major assumption you had for which you are wrong. And I'm just getting comfortable with being wrong and knowing that that can be a very good, that can be a good way to build a business um, because we're, we're very quickly figuring out what not to do because we test fast and we fix fast. And that doesn't work for every business, but for many startups where um, the, the solution isn't clearly evident initially, or there's going to be a lot of modifications needed along the way, uh, being comfortable that you can be wrong a lot and then figuring out how to fix that and adjust for that and, and get comfortable has been a very important thing for me. Uh, and then it also informs what kind of skill set or tools I may have to go and add beyond just sort of self-realization, right? Do I need a little more tech training myself? Do I need a little more communication or empathy training myself? Am I hiring people that are smarter than me and letting them run with things and giving them the latitude to do that? Because you can't build a big scalable business if you have to control and sign off on every single decision. As much right. as we founders try to do that, it, it works for a little while and then it really does not yeah. work if you want to build something that's scalable. Yeah, so true. So true. 
how do you um, create or, or and or maintain a culture again in such a fast growing company? You know, it's 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 hard. It's really mm-hmm. hard. It's so important. And it's even harder because we are um, we're a completely virtual business. So we started right before the pandemic and we were about to get an office. We're like, we were about to sign a lease and get an office. The pandemic hit and then we all started to have to work from our own homes. And then we just ended up hiring good talent and smart people wherever we could find them. And then before we knew it, we realized that people were very distributed. And even if we wanted to put an office somewhere, we wouldn't know where to put it because we didn't have even five people that were in the same place. Um, so, so the benefit was we were able to access talent wherever it may be, but, but it, it created the, this new challenge to your question, how do you create culture in a play in a, in a business where you don't physically work together? And so suddenly you have to think about, you know, what are the tools that matter so that we can get to know each other? Cause it's familiarity is what really builds a bond, right? Because the basic business function, you know, you can use a lot of Slack and you can use a lot of Zoom and and you're all meeting regularly to discuss business things. But, But your question is around culture and culture really means how well do we know each other, like personally, um, and our styles and our pet peeves and what we like to do and what we don't like to do. And do we have families? Do we not? Uh, what are our hobbies? All of those things make us good friends and a team, but you have to then create time and space to build those. Because if, if everything just becomes a quick in and out zoom call or a quick in and out slack, you don't build the familiarity that you need to become friends. So how do you do that without creating a ton more Zoom calls and a ton more slacks? Because if you're already on Zoom calls six hours a day and management then shows up and says, hey, we're going to have three more hours of get to know each other Zoom calls, you, you get fatigue, right? So it's finding that balance, um, which, is, which is really interesting and challenging, but can, but can be done. But it mm-hmm. is the familiarity piece. You've got to create that um, because you don't get culture without it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, you have to build the relationship and the bond between people. Have you done an in-person um, yet? I, I know it's only been three years, right? So maybe you haven't, but is that, is that something in the plan if it hasn't yep. been done? Oh, mm-hmm. no, we, we, Rachel, it's a good question. We absolutely do and have been doing for a while since so since things opened up a little more than a year ago um what we do is we we travel regionally and get people we bring people together say west coast east coast midwest um and we'll bring people together for two or three days and do a little bit of business and strategy um but also some of the personal and social stuff and and that's magic i mean Think about it. If you're not spending money on on rent, you have a little bit of extra money. Spend it on getting people together. It's a little more airfare. Uh, rent out an office or some sort of a space or a WeWork and get people together for some some offsite stuff, some sessions. Work in some fun fun things to do. Um, it, it is really important to do. Uh, last question, Lawrence. What do you see is the growth? trajectory, not so much in numbers, but in how you're going to grow 
get set up and what do you envision adding aside from more courses and programs? I would probably suggest that, you know, we have about 4,000 plus different types of programs now. That is just, that's a lot. Uh, uh, you, you probably don't need e- even that, that number. But what I think becomes important is how do you how do you keep things fresh? And if people are coming back for programming, then you have a programming challenge and you have to understand how often do they need to see fresh content because that informs how often you have to make fresh content. So the, our content factory has to kind of keep that in mind. The other thing is if you want to bring new folks onto the platform, um, can you use, can you use uh, additional languages as a way to do that? Because we, we, we of course know that, yes, it's all well and good to service uh, English speakers, but if we've all come from somewhere else and we have a huge, um, and we have a huge multicultural um, sort of population here in the U.S. and in other places, how do you add multiple languages to sort of continue to build that out? Um, and then we've also thought a little bit more about, uh, from a technology perspective, we have people who come to our platform um, to to enjoy the curriculum and 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 meet others and learn new things. Is there a syndication model? Like, is there a way that we can take our experience in our platform and make it embeddable in other places? So, could I find large publishers elsewhere who are thinking about how do they put new, interesting, and compelling content in front of their uh, their users? And can I embed there? So instead of my only strategy being a lot of marketing to get people to come to me, go partner with other publishers who really think our programming is cool, unique, and complementary to theirs, and embed our stuff there and stand in front of their traffic. That, that could be, for us, we think that that's also an interesting growth uh, strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this has been so fascinating. I love what you've built. Uh, where is the best place for people to learn more about you and learn more about the company? And it sounds like you probably are hiring fast still too. So, you know, feel feel free to plug that too if that's an opportunity. Sure. I for mean, some. folks can folks can always reach out to me on on LinkedIn and 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 be sure to tell me that you know you 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 saw me with 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 Rachel here doing this interview because it'd be be fun to see. Um, what it was that made you reach out and why, uh, but happy to connect with people there and, uh, and, and, and have discussions and, and answer further questions. But feel free, if you have older friends, family, or loved ones, you know, send them to, to, to get set up because uh, we would be happy to, to, to welcome them and help in any way, that, any way that we could. We offer a lot of courses um, at no cost to get people started and trying things. So if you do have an older friend, family, or loved one, uh, send them to getsetup.io or you can getsetup.org, O-R-G also works. Um, and we would welcome uh, anybody and everybody there. But of course, I think LinkedIn is probably a great thing, a great place to find me. And I would love to connect with folks who are either thinking about this problem or thinking about their startup um, or just, you know, um, wanting to reach out entrepreneur to entrepreneur. That's great. Thank you. Um, And I will be definitely sending my mom your way. Wonderful. (laughs) We'd love to have her. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. 
Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends. Friends.